Take your Bible and turn to Joshua chapter 9 this morning. Joshua chapter 9. As we continue in our study of the conquest of the land of Canaan and the leadership of Joshua. Well, this morning, think about it in your life just for a moment. How many decisions you and I come across, face, have to make on an every week, every day basis? Decisions, large and small, to some measure, but our lives and what shapes our lives are hundreds and thousands of small or large decisions at certain pivotal moments of our life. You think this morning when we think about uh, the, the decisions that often graduates will face uh, and, and the number of other decisions now that they have to make. Where am I going to go to college? Uh, what kind of job am I going to find? And all the other questions. Will I, will I be happy with that? Decision after decision after decision, and they don't tend to stop, and I don't anticipate them stopping until one day where our maybe easiest decision will be in heaven, like when we know, well, what am I going to do now? And I don't even have to wake up because there is no night. Uh, I'll just worship, and I'll be doing whatever God wants me to do. But decisions are critical for our lives. And in our story today in Joshua chapter 9, we come across a very a pivotal group of people who recognized that they came to a decision-making point as a group of people that had to either side with the people of the that were in the land of Canaan, or they would go and make a different decision inside with the people of God. And what a remarkable uh, perspective that we will come across today. You will notice in Joshua chapter nine, it is twenty-six verses. We're going to cover the entire. Chapter, so uh, as I will often tell you, listen fast uh, if you can do that. But we're going to cover certain portions of this story. Uh, but as we do, I want to keep in mind this perspective about the Gibeonite deception. And I've framed the main idea this morning in more of a, a similar to what I would describe as a proverbial statement uh, that I want to give to us this morning as we walk through. And it's this. That godly decisions come as a result of consulting the Lord. But decisions made in haste have lasting and binding consequences. Okay? Godly decisions come as a result of consulting the Lord. But decisions made in haste have lasting and binding consequences. Have you ever looked back at your life for a moment on certain pivotal decisions you made and you, like many of us, would look back and say, if I had to go do it all over again, I would not do that. And so you make it the potential aim in certain moments of your life and influences and relationships to say to people, oh, I've been in a circumstance like that. Here's what I wish I wouldn't have chosen. Do the opposite of that. And you have now grown in that level, I think that as we, uh, as we grow in the midst of our Christian walk, that we will often come to moments as imperfect people with the decisions that we make, often maybe perhaps have, which have been done in haste, we have often found, as if you have probably found as I have, is that there is still a multiplicity of impact or consequences of, of all kinds of decisions, large and small. Now, let's, the way I'm going to work through this passage this morning is I want to walk through the story so we have a good handle on what, what is going on in this particular narrative. Now, keep in mind, in, in, in all the narratives, and we bring this back time and time again, if you're here and you're just hearing one of our messages on Joshua for the first time, that this is not just simply a message about good leadership in Joshua. Although we'll see good leadership in the book of Joshua and bad leadership in the uh, book of Joshua, uh, it is not primarily about Joshua. It is primarily about God's act of giving to his people the very things that he had promised to give them and that there the story unfolds so we can see how the people of God were responsible to the person of God. Even in his faithfulness to them, often what we find is that we have choices to make. Will we be faithful to him or will we go on our own path and make a decision to follow 
a very different perspective. Now let's pull in our last week context just for a moment. Last week we paused and here you found the people on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal and this will help us when we frame up the idea of what's going on in the timing. Notice Joshua chapter 9. And as soon as all the kings were, that were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Now it's somewhat interesting because we have this story that's framed after this pause of the circumstance of Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, where they recited and Joshua read the entirety of the law and focused some very focused attentions on the blessing and cursing. Now if you were to come across, you were coming right after this event, what would you likely think would hope to be on your mind? Do the blessings, don't be cursed. It was fairly simple. Obey God and you're going to experience good. And if you disobey God, this is what you can likely anticipate to happen. And if you don't, if you don't honor the Lord, because remember back in Joshua 1, if you choose to follow my word, then I will do all of these things. And there are many occasions which we see the people of God fail in this regard. But if you were a, pe a people group in the land, wrap your mind around this for a moment. This couple of million people that are now sitting at Gilgal and are camped there, they have been there now for quite some time. An excursion of Joshua uh, or, the, or the city of Jericho has now been destroyed and burned to the ground. You have caught wind of this. You've sent, you've sent uh, individuals to, to, to go to these regions and bring back report. Did this really happen? You have firsthand evidence that these people are here to stay. They have just burnt Jericho to the ground and their God is behind them. This God that we remember and heard of all the way back in Egypt. And that's a fascinating component that, you, that the people of the land continue to bring with them. And we're going to see that again in the Gibeonite story. Now they come together. Now this is an interesting fact of the story uh, in the very early parts because it says, okay, a decision was having to be made. The, these smaller kingdoms or these individual kings realized one thing. Jericho fell and they had no help. The city of Ai, which was a fairly decent city and filled with many uh, individuals, that one fell. They had no help. So what they decided to do, instead of saying, well, maybe we should figure out what we're, not, what, we're, what we're supposed to be doing, they say, you know what, let's gather all the kings together and let's form an alliance. Now, already in the story, you can see the resistance and the rebellion that has long been held in the establishment of the people of the land of Canaan. They are not just fighting against the people of Israel. They are fighting and coming against the hand of the living God. Now, I think part of this story is written in such a way so that we realize when they muster up all of these alliances that we as a reader would do something like, you think that alliance is going to meet? You're going you're to take that against God? You're no match for him. I mean, he just, he just allowed trumpets and people's yelling to have the, the walls of Jericho fall. And you think by mustering a group of people together that somehow that will be able to stand? And we as the reader recognize that there is a story that's being told about the power of the living God the living God. Now their timing coming right after this component, I think that the leaders of Israel, the, the people of Israel, and Joshua himself, which is fascinating to me in the story, because we have, we have a negligence in a component of not listening to the Lord immediately after hearing the issue of the blessings and the cursings. But the timing is critical. The people had now been given time in the land. They realized alliances were forming. And the people of Israel were still having to trust God each and every step of the way. Now, let's get into the component of not only the timing, but the trickery of the Gibeonites themselves. 
Notice in, in verse number three. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins and worn out and torn and mended with worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. How can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where did you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, and your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, the, the Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of the country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them. And behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask the counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant. Now think about the interesting side of the trickery of the Gibeonites. And we're, uh, we're, we're told in the story, and I think left in somewhat limbo in the very early parts, that it says all of these kingdoms come together, and then you hear these groups of people. You hear the people like the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites. But at the very heart of the story, all of a sudden, you don't connect the Gibeonites with the Hivites. And you realize that the reader is supposed to go, wait a minute, something is going on here. Gibeon was a regional component that was accompanied by a number of different smaller communities that they would call the Gibeonite clans or the Gibeonite region. And the people group from which they belonged were the Hivites. And there were different groups that had settled in Canaan and the Gibeonites region, which we will see at the latter part of this chapter, was the Hivites. Now here's some interesting uh, components about the story, as I said. One, the Gibeonites were actually the Hivites, and we, we remember there's something going on here. And it's interesting because if you were a coach on any certain level and you would think to yourself, I don't want to give my playbook just to the, the people that I want to defeat in this particular scenario. But somehow, you recognize that the people of the land had some level of access to the responses from previous battles. And the Gibeonites began to recognize this. In fact, they contemplated, hmm, we could either end up like Jericho and I, or we could do something about it. Now, I wouldn't probably necessarily say the, the wisest counsel of the, of the Gibeonite people, hey, let's lie to them. Like, that's not a way to go. But that's what they did. They were trying to survive in a, in a time when they knew what their fate would be because it had already been exemplified by God's destruction of Jericho and God meant business with them. You notice if you were, and write this text down and I'll read it for you, but Deuteronomy chapter 20 verses 15 to 18 says this. And this is Moses giving them the, the Israelites instruction in the land. And here's what he says in Deuteronomy 20, 15. Thus, shall, thus you shall do to all the cities that are, that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. You shall devote them to complete destruction the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, 
that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. Now, here's an interesting side note to the story of Gibeonites. They seem to somehow get a hold of the instruction that if you made a treaty with the people who were outside the land, the people of God would not destroy you. Seems simple enough. And probably the people in the land were hopeful, they were desirous, thinking, man, if only we were outside the land. Because they're destroying everybody inside, and the Gibeonites realized this Deuteronomy 20 passage. In fact, it's interesting as they connive and, and were very cunning with Joshua and the leaders that they say these statements, for example, in Joshua chapter 9, verse 6. Well, we are from a very distant country. I remember standing at this uh, uh, rundown King Hussein's uh, uh, dwelling place where, where the area of the Gibeonites were in Israel, and you look, and every place that's around you and somewhat in the hill country, you're, you're standing down in this valley, and you can just picture this, and right over the top of the ridge, right over the next mountain, was actually where Gibeah was. And so you can see this reality. They're coming to Joshua, and they're saying, we are from a distant country. And they're trying to help them recognize and sell this story. In fact, but Joshua immediately wasn't duped by this reality. In fact, we realize Joshua was a wise leader in Joshua 9-7. He became skeptical. He said, now, come on. What if you are just over the hill in some sense? And then we make a treaty with you. Joshua understood what was at stake. He understood the blessings. He understood the cursings. He understood Deuteronomy chapter 20. He was not to go outside of that. And yet, in order to sell their story a bit further, because they see Joshua and the leader's reluctancy. And Joshua makes it plain. Who, who really, who are you? And where do you really come from? And you notice they don't kind of sidestep this reality. They don't really give them a straight answer. And they start again in Joshua chapter 9, verse 9. We are from a very distant country. And Joshua continues to investigate. Do you notice this in Joshua chapter 9? In order to continue selling this story, in Joshua 9 uh, and onward, they start talking about the conquest of those cities outside the land. Well, why do you think they do that? They're selling the reality that they weren't from the land. Oh, we came from another country that was way outside the land of Canaan, and we heard what you did to Og, and we heard what you did to Sihon, those kingdoms which were all outside, and you made it a treaty with them, and they're still, uh, you, you did what, what you were supposed to, to you, you destroyed them, but you made treaties with other people. They realized this in order to sell it, that all their illustrative reasons were all outside the land. They couldn't come to him and say, well, hey, you know, we were just down the street from Jericho and I, and we saw the smoke rising in the distance, and we thought, well, we should make a treaty with you. No, the reality is they had to sell this story. And so they give all of the details that would make them appear to be outside the land. Now, to make it all work... I mean, I don't know what this, how this went on, but it's just, you know, I, I get this interesting narrative, you know, this group of people saying, okay, how are we going to make this story believable? And they gather, it's like, okay, well, we can't walk in there like this. We got to tear our clothes. We got to wear sandals that look worn out. We got to bring food that's kind of moldy and somewhat crumbly we got to bring old wineskins because we can't tell them that, hey, you know, we've really only been on the, the walk for about uh, 30 minutes instead of like miles and miles. You know, it's interesting because they go through all this scenario and, and they're trying to cover up the lie that's going on. And so they rip their clothes. And by the way, just a side note, the Gibeonites were clearly ahead of their time because they didn't realize how cool ripped clothes were. And when my children came in and, you know, with a level of ripped jeans, I should have said to them, you are not a Gibeonite. You have not come of our country. You came from upstairs. 
And yet those jeans were still more expensive than the ones that were fully done. The Gibeonites had to sell the story, and so they come and they begin to say all of the words that you would expect to hear in this trickery, and they come and they, it's like the bread is falling apart, and they grab the wineskin and it's about to burst. And then they give the story, of course, because our people, our leaders told us, you've got to go to them. This is urgent. And you notice the pressing reality. Make a covenant with us. And what are they trying to do? Let's get this done before you find out who we really are. We don't want anybody at the top of the hill going, hey, guys, you forgot something. Because they're right down here, and they knew what their fate would be. Now, the tragedy that we come across in verse 14, as we read this story, it says, so the men took, of, so, took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. What a tragic statement. In all the reality of the stories of the conquest, we see this happen, and I think it's deliberate. Most commentators would say this is deliberate, even in the story of I, uh, as Pastor Ben unfolded that, that they rushed into this just saying, look it, there's, there's, we've got plenty of people, we've got army to spare, we can take these people, and no mention of, of consultation with the Lord took place. Here they had paused for a moment, reminded themselves of the blessing and cursings, and now here we are at it again. And not even, not too long after, it says that, the, that Joshua and the leaders did not consult the Lord. Now how would they do that? There's an interesting level where you can read in the Old Testament that God commanded his people uh, to be able to consult the Lord to determine which decisions that they should make. And they just decided that they wouldn't do that. And so they took the provisions and notice what happened. They just, they just bought the lie hook, line, and sinker without, saying, without even saying, you know what, I don't know. We, you know, they could have just said, we need some time. But at every turn, the Gibeonites press them, make a treaty with us. Make a treaty with us. Look, see, we really are who we say we are. Would you just take a look at all the evidence? We are that. And Joshua goes, hmm, you know what? I see it. I see it with my eyes. I can see what's going on. I'm hearing what you're telling me. You know what? I'm willing to, I'm willing to buy it. And the reason he did is at times, many times in leadership, personal wisdom is sometimes viewed as better than, than a moment where you have to consult the Lord for direction. Now, it's interesting with Joshua because he recognized what, what was at stake, and yet at the same time, I think this helps us realize, if you were writing a story and you had a biography put about yourself, would you put that in it? Like, hey, put that time where I blew it in the biography. They'll get a kick out of that one. That shows you the fullness of what God wants us to know. You know, sometimes we learn by what people do in a positive sense, but there are many times in which we learn historically from a negative sense. Don't do this. Don't model. Don't, don't do the things that I model. And I think that's what's going on here. Joshua's own willingness and humility as an inspired text to, to say, you know what? I did that. I didn't consult the Lord. We'll come back and pick up on that reality in just a little bit. But you recognize that when Joshua made that decision and, and, and made the, uh, you know, took of their, their provisions and made that alliance and treaty with them, that all of a sudden the leaders were also culpable for this decision. It wasn't Joshua acting alone. Joshua went with the leaders, and the leaders themselves took a look at the evidence, and they all consulted together and said, well, I mean, it seems believable. Can I just pause for a moment and tell you this? Lies wouldn't be lies if they didn't seem somewhat believable. That's what makes lying so destructive, is because in all in ways in which people connive to try to, to, to lie and give a different story... 
it appears like, yeah, you, I could see that. And yet we sometimes fail to ask more questions. And the leaders made a covenant of peace with them. And you notice this, this covenant of peace, which, by the way, as we think about decisions made in haste, uh, also have long and binding consequences, that this decision we're going to find out in Joshua 10 that once they call on them, they had to act. But this wasn't just a binding decision for the time of the conquest. This was for the lifetime of these people. You, could, you can go to 2 Samuel chapter 21, and it's interesting to note there that it says in 2 Samuel 21 this, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and of Judah. Years and years after the conquest, when, there was a, when the king was finally ruling in the land, Saul thought he could all of a sudden take matters into his own hands and destroy the Gibeonites who, who Joshua and the, and the leaders had made a promise to. And God says to Saul, blood guilt is on your hand. There was a treaty, there was a covenant, and I am, when I'm involved, it is binding. As foolish as that decision was, as hasty as it was made, and, you, and they probably had access to, they, they knew the story of the conquest, they knew the Gibeonites. Saul was not acting out of negligence. He was acting out of rebellion to the very things that God had told him not to do. I think it makes a note for us in the story, mentally in the narrative, to say, guess what? These decisions we make have lasting impact from generation to generation to generation. Joshua chapter 9, verse 16, it's quite interesting that at, uh, it says that at the end of three days, after, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were neighbors and that they lived among them. Like, I don't know how this went down, like, after this Joshua pulls him in and says, like, now who are you really? I mean, we made the peace treaty, like, actually, I live right over there. <laughs> You're a sucker. <laughs> but you can't kill me now so I can say what I want. I mean, here it comes out that the truth of their location after the end of three days, and notice what took place in verse 17. And the people of Israel set out and they reached their cities on the third day. And now their cities, this is the region, were Gibeon, Shephira, uh, Beroth, and Kiriath-Jirim. All of these cities belonged to this particular Hivite group. And in verse 18, notice this statement. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of, of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. And notice what just took place here. Joshua and the elders made a decision before, before God in haste. They made a covenant with a people they should have never made it with. And now they're traveling to these particular regions. And now everyone else in the congregation of Israel is being brought up to speed. Because what was their expectation when they went to these particular cities? All right, buckle up. We're going we're gonna to destroy these cities because God tells us to destroy them because we just read the whole law. We know that we're supposed to do this. And now all of a sudden the word trickles down from their leaders of the clans and the elders and said, well, uh, hold on a minute. Uh, we're not going to take these guys. Oh, really? Why not? Well, they kind of made a peace treaty with them. Now, the people murmured against the leaders. Now, I don't want to say that grumbling and complaining is ever justifiable, but in reality, is there a sense in which the people recognized what the leaders had just done to disobey the Lord, and they were frustrated with that reality of the things that they just read on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim? What are they doing up there? 
Have you ever thought about that in the life of the congregation of any church? You're thinking about the elders, and you're thinking this morning, oh, we can relate. What are those guys doing in those meetings? I mean, they spent hours. Are we going to get an elevator fixed or what? The reality is, is you can very easily pass judgment on things that you have very little understanding of. But the people struggled because there was a failure to follow the things of the Lord. And yes, we're working on the elevator. But the reality is, is that leaders, if you put all your hope in leaders, many times leaders themselves can even fail you. This is why, over the course of the story, I think the point is for us, don't just follow good leaders. Follow good leaders, but make sure the leaders are following the Lord too. Be mindful that they're in the truth, that they're bringing their minds to the text, that they're praying over decisions. And I can tell you I'm so thankful to be part of a group of people who do that as a group of elders. And no decision that is being made is some kind of component, this whimsical reality that we just say, well, we got to make a decision, so let's just make something. If we're not ready, then we, we, if we don't see that there's clarity, if there's multiple voices going on, that truth is being followed, then we're not going to do it. You want to be part of a church that has leadership that's paying attention to this. The people continue to murmur. It wasn't the only time that they had murmured in the past, but in this occasion, what a challenge it would be when you honestly see a deviation from the things God tells the leaders to do. And then, do you trust leadership like that? This is why it's so important for leaders in our home, leaders in our churches, leaders all over, when we're thinking about leadership positions, that it is only as good, that leadership will only be as good as you follow and pay attention to the wisdom of God. Without it, you're not going to lead well. I don't want my family, after multiple times of leading, murmuring against me. There was all kinds of ways in which we think about these components of lies and lies, it's funny how the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. And even in the case of various components of lying, here's one thing that I've always found to be true. Liars can't sustain their lies. They might be able to do it for a while, but at some particular point, they always get caught. And it didn't take the Gibeonites very long because they got caught. I remember one particular occasion that my mom thought she wasn't going to be found out as a grandma because she loved to give our kids far more treats than we wanted them to have. Say whatever you want about it. But my mom realized she wasn't supposed to be giving her cookies. She was supposed to eat dinner. And yet, for some reason, my mom thought on this trip, this walk that she would always take her in the stroller, they would pass by this bakery, which they would take a deviation and go get a cookie. And so one day, we're tra traveling along in the stroller with our oldest, and all of a sudden, we're walking by that bakery, and she goes, cookie. I said, what is going on here? I call up my mom. You've been found out. She couldn't maintain the lie for long. Now, it was a comical thing that we laugh with her about, but the reality is, is lying and deception can be a very detrimental and devious thing. And I would challenge you, don't be a liar. This is what not to do. Don't be a liar and a fake. Joshua finds out in verse 20 and 22, he says, Joshua summoned them after he found that they were just uh, their neighbors. And it says, Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us? Saying, we are, from a, we, are, we are very far from you when you dwell among us. Now, therefore, you are cursed and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty 
that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made, made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation for the altar of the Lord to this day and in the place that he should choose. It's interesting that we go from the timing and the tragedy and the truth that, re- that comes to, to bear, and what we realize is that these people, and this is something fascinating that I want you to take away from this story. The Gibeonites appeared to believe something that all the other people in the land seemed to neglect. That God was going to do what God said he was going to do. They feared what would become of them and to their families and to their children. And they acted differently than all the alliance of the other kings. And much like Rahab, who knew that she was going to be destroyed, she hid the spies and acted in faith and then... She was saved. Now we wouldn't commend various components of the end result. It's not the end justifies the means. We wouldn't say go and lie. But what we would say is God uses even these people's fear of him to draw them to a different conclusion than everybody else in the land had come to. They knew that they they would be destroyed. And yet Joshua realizes now they had made a treaty with them And that he begins to realize that these people, almost very similar language, we feared greatly for our lives, we understood what what was commanded by, by your people to destroy the people in the land, and now they said to them humbly, do what you will with us. Joshua says to him, and this is not the thing that I'm, I'm sure that they probably wanted to hear. Well, you're going to be cursed for the rest of your life. Well, I mean, I think in some sense, I think in some minimal response, I think like, at least we're alive. We're cursed, but we're alive. Like you go home and you say, well, they didn't kill us. They at least made good on their treaty. But Joshua said they are cursed. Now, it's interesting when you think about this particular curse, because this is the very reality that Noah prophetically spoke of when, when we talked about where all of this started with Ham, Sham, and Japheth when they came in on Noah and the end result because of what Ham had done. And Noah says these words in Genesis 9, 25. Uh, he says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants you shall be to your brothers. And now this is prophetically completed of what Noah said in Genesis 9. And this people group, here's something interesting to me. God never overlooks a detail that was previously stated. He is so wise, he's so in tune, he always makes sure everything falls in line. And that's exactly what happened here. And he says, you'll be a servant of servants. They believed the Lord And he didn't destroy him. The Gibeonites submit to Joshua and the leaders. And notice this. The people were murmuring against Joshua and the leaders for the decision that they made. And Joshua responds with, they're going to be drawers of water for the congregation and drawers of water for the altar of the Lord. They're going to be serving the whole congregation and they're going to be serving the God that they said that they had feared for the rest of their life. Now, what, can we understand, what, what are the lessons we can learn from this? This is where I'll park the rest of our time, and we'll go through these fairly quickly when we think about five lessons from the story of the Gibeonites' deception. Here's lesson number one. God desires for us to consult with him before we make decisions. Have you ever had those moments where you just decided you would do whatever you wanted to do because you concocted in your own mind that this was a great, uh, this was a thing you should have or a thing you should do or a person you should be with uh, or, or an occupation perhaps that you should, uh, you should have or a job that you should go to. You can do so many things without consulting the Lord. 
Did you notice in the text that was read by, uh, in our scripture reading, James 4, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such a, uh, such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? It's a mist that happens for a little while and vanishes away. You should be saying, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Far too many times in pastoral ministry have I heard people say, God, open this incredible door of me. I'm going to get paid more. I'm going to go to this new position, and I'm going to go to a different state, and I'm going to do this. And I, and I ask them one question. So where are you going to go to church? We'll figure all that out when we get there. No, see, that's the first thing you should be doing before you get there. So long, many times, people will be negligent of the very things that God says is his will. And it is his will that you're part of a body. That you're accountable to a people, to elders who care for you, people that love you. Oh, how quickly for the pursuit of money, position, and power, people are willing to make hasty decisions and watch their family lives crumble. All for thinking to themselves, but we'll, we'll, we'll live in a bigger house. We'll make more money. And they fail to consult the scripture and realize what the most valuable things are. And many times as a pastor, as I've asked people, as they've transitioned from community to community, they'll say, hey, we just moved here. I'm like, okay, how long have you been here? They're like, five years, we're still looking for a church. I know the church market is difficult to follow. But I would challenge you, don't wait long if God were to ever put you in a position where you don't find yourself first finding a church family that is committed to the truth, that is committed to the things of God, people who will care about your soul, because if you don't, it'll be to your demise. And years can quickly go by, and children can get older, and all of a sudden you realize that what you grew up in is nothing like what your children grew up in. Perhaps because you may not have paid attention to making the main thing the main thing. We must consult the Lord. It's so critical for us. Here's lesson number two. Be careful not to believe everything you hear. And if you're a parent, you get what I'm saying. Because you realize, you notice this, you know, do you notice that you do this almost naturally in your own mind, that when you want something, it could be, uh, it could be anything, I mean, from the smallest thing to the larger thing, and, you know, your kids may come up to you and say, so I've had this on my mind. What do you want? Well, I want this, but here's why I need it. And they lay out like 10 reasons why this is going to complete their life. And you're sitting there listening to the story going, you are short-sighted, not only short. <laughs> the reality is, is that in many ways, people will come into your life and they can tell you whatever they want, to, you, want, they want you to hear. You realize that even as people come into the body at the chapel, that there are questions, meetings, membership components, because we want to make sure that what someone says they profess, they actually possess. That's critical. Don't just say, oh, I'm a Christian because you're around a bunch of Christian people. Be careful to examine, ask questions. I think this is one of the failures of the leadership of Joshua. He could have said, I need to know a little bit more. Like, tell me this, tell me that. But you see him move quite quickly. Long, long have I watched in many occasions where people have found themselves in marriage situations. I can remember one specifically. Where years and years after a marriage had already made a covenant before the Lord. They rehearsed, the, the, the wife rehearsed to me. Well, they, he told me he was a Christian. 
only to find out only just weeks or months after they were actually married. Oh, I just said that because I knew that's what you wanted to hear. It's so dangerous that a hasty decision can have that level of binding covenantal agreement. And you can't just go after you find that out a week and say, well, let's just part ways. <laughs> you have made a covenant at that component, and you wouldn't say, well, I guess divorce them. No, because now you made a covenant, good, bad, or otherwise, this covenant was made, and they believed everything that the person said. They can even do actions that look like being a believer. Can I just tell you, don't find yourself in that, that circumstance. Be careful as you get into relationships to look for fruit, which means you've got to be patient. If you're not willing to be patient, you will never be able to make good decisions. Because anybody can tell you whatever they want, and you'll say, well, I guess because you said it. Be wise to be patient to see the fruit of what someone says they claim to believe. Be gracious and be realizing that also you don't want to just become critical. You don't want to just look at everybody who tells you something and said, you don't just assume they're a liar before they're a truth teller. That wouldn't be well for your relationships either. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love believes all things. But love's not foolish in a way that it doesn't ask the right questions, pursue the right answers, look for the right fruit. If you don't do that, I'm telling you, you will look back and you will be fooled by people. We want to be a people who, who are truthful in what we say, which means we need to be wise people who are willing to ask hard questions. Like, well, you, you, you say you're a believer. Can you tell me what the gospel is? That's a critical component. We ask every single person who desires to join the chapel, who meet in a membership meeting and claims profession, and we read a testimony, and we say, all right, can you tell me, and do you know the gospel? Because we don't, and, and, and not only do you know it, but where have you seen the fruit of it in your life? What other people validate that? So that we don't all of a sudden have people who come and aren't who they say they are. Really critical. Lesson number three. Be a person of your word. This is a remarkable and astounding reality in the story that, you know, I think Joshua after he, and the leaders after they made that covenant and treaty with the people of Gibeon and found out they were just from the city over the hill, that they would have loved to take that decision back. But once they made the decision, and it was binding and it was covenantal before God, they couldn't just go back on it. Covenants were serious, which is why God paid so much attention to them. Be a person of your word. Let me just apply this in your marriage in a moment, for a moment. If you stood before an altar, and you said... Before God and before these people, I commit to love you until death do you part. You have to mean it. It's that big of a deal. You can't just say, well, it's just, it's just making a contract right now. No, you're making a covenant before God. Don't make a hasty decision so all of a sudden you look back and you wish that you would have done something different years later. You should have asked something. Be a person of your word. And even if the fact that you got yourself into a circumstance, now you have the responsibility to actually live that out in a way that is pleasing to God. And that's what Joshua did. No, he said to the people, notice the difference in the story. The people came to those cities and they wanted to kill them. Joshua said, we can't do it. We made a covenant with them before God and I will not go back on it. I shouldn't have made it, but we did make it and now it's binding. Be a person of your word. Four, seeking God's will for our lives is critical. How do you do that? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, and the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever. I encourage you, the way you find out God's will is to paying attention to revealed truth. Too many Christians are, are trying to think about the things that are secret and make decisions based upon what ifs instead of what is. 
be close to the truth. And I love this last aspect of the story. Lesson number five. God continues to astound us with his mercy. He could have intervened at any particular moment and told Joshua, just kill them. They're a wicked people. But when that covenant was made and it was binding before God, I think it's a picture for us of God's mercy like it was to Rahab. And you know what that tells you about people who were devoted to destruction? That God is not some vindictive, destructive God. He wants people to come in contact with the living God and make a decision of faith. These people lived in and amongst the people of Israel, much like Rahab and her family did, and they would be serving the people, and they would be seeing the wonders of God, and they would now have the opportunity not only to have a longer life, but have an opportunity to have faith in this God. God is so merciful when we watch him in the conquest to say, even though I know these people are rebellious and wicked, I'm still going to save them. And you know what? That's good news for us because we were like those people. We were people who were rebellious, lost, and wicked. And God in his mercy came and found us so that we could be saved. As we wrap up this morning, just to remind us, godly decisions come as a result of consulting the Lord. But decisions made in haste have lasting and binding consequences. Let's take that message seriously and be people of our word, people who seek God's will, people who are, are wise in our relationships, and people who are just enamored with God's mercy. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your incredible mercy and love in our lives, Lord. The story of the, uh, of the Gibeonites who saw all that you were doing and all that you had commanded and they sought to make an alliance with your people so that they would not be destroyed because they knew you, God, were a person of your word. Lord, help us, Lord, to trust in you, to follow your word, to be in your word so that we could have your word influence the kind of decisions that we would make so that we would never make hasty decisions that would have unfortunate and lasting consequences to our lives. Lord, we want our lives to bring glory to you. In your name we pray, amen.